Welcome to the Quarantine Files, where your high school librarians are giving you helpful tips to make it through this pandemic and the next. Um, we'll start out, as usual, talking about our fake news of the week. And our favorite this time was the little piece of information circulating that coronavirus is spread by farting. So, you know, this is like so many of the other pieces of fake news. I mean, technically no one can say that's not possible. I mean, droplets of parts can be expelled through farting and coughing and sneezing. I mean, there's, there's more than one way that parts of you are circulating in the air, but, uh, I'd have to say, unless anyone else can uh, prove me wrong, that that's not the main way scientists believe that people are contracting coronavirus. What does everyone else say? Yeah. I'm going to need a bigger mask. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I would say that hopefully you're out with your shorts or pants on, and so um, it would not be able to be contracted by somebody else if you were to accidentally um, fart. Yeah. So, yeah, everyone and, you know, go out fully clothed. And ideally you have a double layer going on. Ideally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what would help? <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, the likelihood is very small, but it, it's one more way to throw something out there to, to fear to freak then, people out yeah and then because everyone does that and people hadn't been you know concerned about it and so now should you be concerned about it the librarians say probably not yeah let's try not to be on the same level <laughs> you know just in general yeah but coronavirus or no it seems to be something most of us avoid <laughs> All right, so we wanted to take today to talk about some of the diseases that have gone through our country and through our world in the past. This is not the first epidemic, not the first pandemic. It's the first that any of us have lived through or know about. But certainly, if you have grandparents or great-grandparents, they can tell stories probably of how epidemics and pandemics in the past have affected your, your own family. Um, so we have a lot of statistics here that we've collected on a lot of different diseases. Um, you've all heard of the Black Death, bubonic plague, and you've probably studied that in school, that um, 30 to 60% of Europe's population was killed. Um, this was 1347 to 1351 for the peak, and um, it's noted in a lot of literature from the time, a lot of poetry, um, that Ring Around the Rosies song that we all sang as children comes from that period. Um, the pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. That's uh, talking about the burning of the bodies um, during the Black Plague. So this was a huge deal. and People at the time had no idea where it was coming from. And through science and through research, at the time, they were able to figure it out and turn it around. Um, it was caused by a bacteria that was being spread by rats. So that's just one example. Um, who wants to take a different one? Talk about you know, how that 
pandemic went down. Can, can I just say really fast? I think the whole uh, "Bring Around the Rosies" that being a children's song that they play like the game to is a little bit morbid. <laughs> Isn't For it sure? True? But you know, it's these things sweep through cultures, and people try to explain it to children, and they try to make it less scary. And so this was, you know, a song that would teach them, you know, to look for the signs, the ring around the rosies. They can understand so that they know what symptoms to look for when they couldn't read. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, 1633 to 1634, there was the smallpox, of course. Um, this was more than that, but, um, that was the time when it was brought over to America and that ended up wiping out about 70% of the native American population because they'd never had any sort of, um, pandemic like that before. They hadn't been exposed to the pox like people in Europe had been. And so there was no herd immunity at the time. Um, and so, you know, when it gets exposed to a new population that's never had exposure to it, there's no antibodies built up. Um, and definitely they had no, um, scientific vaccines or anything at the time. Um, I think what people are going to notice as we talk about these things is that as science progressed, the pandemics and the epidemics became less impactful as far as cost of human life. Um, so this was another one that killed quite a bit of um, people because science wasn't there at that point. I'm really interested in the SARS epidemic that was in Toronto, um, gosh, right around the time that a lot of our high schools were born, so it wouldn't be familiar to them, but I remember um, it being on my radar as a new teacher that the whole city of Toronto was shut down whenever the SARS epidemic made its way there. And I think um, it's in the real recent memory of a lot of the people who are in quarantine right now in, in Toronto. Yeah, so SARS is the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and that was early 2000s. Um, yeah. yeah, actually, um, my husband was a microbiologist at the time and um, was going to work on SARS at that time, and I remember being super freaked out about it because we had new little babies. Mm. Well, and the swine flu is recent enough that um, students I actually really have now. Flu. My son had the swine flu. My yeah, had this. So that was 2009 was the peak of it. And I remember um, I was teaching at the college and I went to teach one day, one class. And about halfway through the class, I basically passed out. And so class was over. <laughs> And um, I remember just being very, very out of it for a couple of days. You know, everything was kind of um, loopy. Like I had high fever and my sight wasn't great. Everything seemed kind of um, shaky. And then a couple of days later, it passed and I was fine. But um, it was a pretty intense couple of days of just in and out of consciousness. Yeah, my well, son and there was, was sick for days and days with high fevers that would spike at night. And he fared, I think, a little better than the adults did who had it, which, you know, is true of a lot of flus. Um, he, he made it through, but it was right during Halloween, so he couldn't trick or treat. I remember everyone was super sad about that, but that's how it goes. You know, you keep your germs to yourself. <laughs> I have a Spanish uh, flu story. 
My great grandmother lived on a farm in East Texas and um, she, she was telling my parents about this a long time ago and it's recently come up again about her brother. Someone asked about her brother and how old he was and she said, well, we think he's about this old and they were like, what do you mean you think? And she still told the story of he was sort of adopted. Um, the doctor one day uh, came by and said, I need you to watch this little boy. His parents are very sick. And they said, okay. And he said, I've got to go. And uh, he never came back. And so they just had this little boy. And so they went to town and asked around and the boy's whole family had died. And then the doctor had died. And so they were never really sure where he came from. And my dad said, what year was this? And she was like, oh, it was around the end of 1918. And wow. he was like, oh, it's a Spanish flu. And she inherited a little brother. Wow. I know. Crazy. That's, That's story. crazy. <laughs> All of my knowledge of the Spanish flu comes from Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> well, my grandmother lived during that time. And she still, you know, until the day she died, if she heard someone coughs, she went the other way. She was very aware of coughing. Um, she remembers being a little girl in a covered wagon in West Texas at the time. And, um, they, at the time you would travel during the day and at night you would circle up your wagons and they would, you know, make a circle at night. And these were strangers. They just happened to be on the road at the same time that you were. And uh, it was just a little safety and numbers thing while you were sleeping. And so they'd circled up and the people in the, the wagon next to my grandmother's family started coughing and it was a big deal to move your wagon because you got to hitch up the horses and gather all the stuff. And I mean, it was a, it was a whole, you know, hour and a half ordeal, but they did it. They hooked it up. They went off by themselves way far away from the circle because they heard someone cough. It was a big deal at the time. When I was doing the research for Spanish flu, they said that one third of the world's population contracted it at some point. So I wouldn't be surprised, or I'm not surprised that so many of us have family that have talked about it. Yeah, and in my family, TB is a big part of our story. Um, tuberculosis, between 1895 and 1954, they're saying by the beginning of the 19th century, TB killed one in seven of all the people that have ever lived. So um, at first, they thought it was just caused by people not getting enough sleep. They thought people weren't getting enough sleep and they had the wrong climate. So they needed to be in a different climate and get a lot of sleep. And so people who would contract it would go to sanitariums, sanatoriums, mm -hmm. where they would have to just sleep and lay around. They weren't really allowed to get up and walk around. And um, if they could just get enough sleep, they thought they could fight this. Of course, around 1892, they discovered it was contagious, that it was actually a bacteria or bug that was causing this. Um, but my grandfather had TB um, when he was a teenager. And so uh, around eighth grade, he um, had to leave school. He wasn't able to get a, an education past eighth grade because of it. And um, for 10 years, he fought it. He was at a sanitarium for a while and then realized, if I have to stay here, I'm going to die, is what he told everyone. Because it was everyone around him was sick. Everyone just had to lay around all the time and sleep. And so he left and lived in a tent in North Dakota on the family 
land in the cold for a number of years um, until he was not coughing anymore and could come back into the house. So he lost, you know, 10 years of his life, as he puts it. And uh, he always worked two and three jobs after that because he felt like he had to make up for this time that he lost and was never able to finish his education. That's so wow. That is the Kit Lemming. Yeah. I can't imagine that. And both of his children have advanced degrees and are what I would call workaholics because this, uh, this idea that you got to work, work, work because he couldn't work. He had to stay, you know, quarantined for so long um, uh, made him really value work. That's lonely. Interesting. It shows how far we've come too, because here we are continuing our education, even though we're social distancing, um, because we know that's important. And um, we know that social contact is important too. It's more than just the kids keeping their, um, you know, studies up, but that they have that contact with people, teachers and things like that, so that they can not just be at a sanatorium or in a tent isolated from humanity. Yeah, we have come, we have so much going for us in our current situation that we have not had in the past during our, right. our issues. There have been some, uh, some neat um, things that have come from our social distancing. Um, things are looking up as far as um, the vaccine trials and, um, you know, our social distancing measures seem to be working for the most part. Our numbers are, are reducing somewhat, some places. Um, but it's had some great effects on Earth, and today is Earth Day, so some of the good news um, that we've had are, are, is how we're no longer affecting the Earth in the same negative ways. Who wants to talk about some of the ways we're helping the Earth, just by social distancing and all the things we're doing? Definitely less air pollution because of the lack of cars. More Absolutely. walking and bike riding, that's a good thing. Yeah, and scientists are actually able to see that and measure that. The pictures, before and after pictures, are amazing, right? Yes. Well, I but, Allison and Maddie shared before and after pictures of, like, Hong Kong. Yeah, so I've always wanted to go to Hong Kong, and I, was, I haven't yet. I was researching a trip and saw that um, because the skyline, the famous skyline, is so smoggy, they have set up a virtual background of what it would look like if it was clean, in good condition. So blue skies, no smog, um, where usually it looks like a foggy day in London because of all of the smog. So um, there's pictures online of, of people taking their uh, tourist photos in front of it, and I was wondering if how much it's cleared up right now. I tried to do a little... Googling research before and I didn't see much, but I imagine that if things kept on in the way they are and very soon. Yeah, that'd be cool. Well, no. and in India, we were talking about um, the Himalayas that people in India can now see the Himalayas where they couldn't before, which is crazy to me that you could live so close and not see this ginormous mountain. Yeah. And with less air pollution, it makes sense. Obviously, we as well an industry. Um, I also read, in addition to less air pollution, that there's been less seismic activity. 
So I thought that was pretty interesting that um, the earth had quieted down. How that's connected. Anyone know how that's connected? Science teacher? <laughs> I know, I was going to say our resident science teachers. I wonder if like, like take California, for instance, because I know Maddie shared a tweet saying that the air pollution was down like 31% in Los Angeles. But that makes you wonder too. So obviously there's, there's a lot less traffic and all. So just the movement on the highways and stuff, it makes you wonder if that has something to do with the earth quieting down. Right. Yeah, it'll be um, it says it's because of less human activity. I had actually looked this up um, and was just reviewing that article that I found. And they said it's because there's less human activity. So it's not causing the, the seismic activity that it would normally cause. It's amazing. So yeah, this is, you know, not our first pandemic. It won't be our last. Um, our measures seem to be working. Um, communication and international cooperation is needed. Eventually herd immunity um, will, will be a factor. That's what's happened in the past. Um, so, and they say by mid 2021, they're hoping to have a vaccine. I know that seems far away now, but when you look at the trajectory of previous pandemics, um, you know, that's not, that's not too bad considering some went over hundreds of years and decades. Right. And in the meantime, we have these positive effects on the earth, which I, I know scientists are studying carefully to figure out what, what about our activities have caused these things and how we can reduce that even in the future after our, our vaccines make this particular virus not in the news anymore. All right, anybody have anything else to add before we talk about our book this week? All right, so I wanted to talk about Queen of Hearts by Martha Brooks. Um, this one is a story, it's a historical fiction. So it talks about um, the main character is Mary Claire and her two siblings that are younger. Um, they all have TB and they have to be exiled to a sanitarium to chase the cure, which is like I said before, a lot of rest and relaxation. And when they go there, they have to go without any other family members, without any adults. And this is for a period of what could be years. And so it's a story about how they manage and who gets sicker and who, um, who gets well and who gets to go home and who doesn't. And um, so it's kind of a, a nice look into that particular outbreak in our history um, and what it might have been like to have been a teenager living through that. So you can get that on Sora um, or Half Price Books. It's been around for a while. You can probably pick it up there. Um, so if there's nothing else, that's going to be Wait, our Oh, Gina. Has oh, Gina. Sorry, Sing us out, Gina. I just, I just remembered. Um, so, Fever, seventeen ninety three, yes. um, is a book that several oh, of the kids yeah. in our um, district read uh, in middle school. But if you haven't read it, um, it's about the yellow fever outbreak. It's by Laurie Halls Anderson, and so um, that might be another one if you're interested in the history of other pandemics. And then, what's the one with the pox party? Octavian, nothing. I don't know that. 
I don't know. Okay, we'll have to tweet the title because now I've lost it. But there is this uh, book about the pox parties they used to have to try to um, get people to um, get an immunity to the smallpox. So what they do is they'd actually um, make a little cut on your skin and then put infected an infected piece of gauze basically under your skin and sew it there so that you would, that was their form of a um, vaccine because you know, now they have antibodies and things they use instead of actually giving you live virus smallpox to get you over it. And so people would of course die at these pox parties, but it, it's very interesting if you want to see like the historical measures people took um, to try to build an immunity. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for the quarantine files. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. 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 Stay out of pox parties. Bye. <laughs>